the status quo of psychedelic policy. If you've been following our podcast and blog, you will have learned, if you were not previously aware, that psychoactive compounds such as MDMA and psilocybin are well on their way to becoming approved to be used medically under US law. This is thanks to a plethora of high-quality research results demonstrating that not only are these psychedelic compounds quite harmless when used professionally, but crucially, that they appear to be effective in significantly relieving a great deal of an individual's suffering associated with mental health disorders like major depression, anxiety and PTSD. As such, we thought it might be helpful to write up an overview of the status quo of psychedelic policy for each of the psychedelics currently being studied. We thought it would be helpful to additionally explain how currently illicit drugs became legally approved for medical use by federal governments, including the role of regulatory agencies such as the MHRA in the UK or the FDA in the US. Generally, when federal governments decide on how to classify a drug, there are two main questions. Number one, can it be abused? And number two, does it have any medical value? If the answer to question one is yes, it is put on a schedule. The scheduling system came about as a consequence of the Vienna Convention of 1971, when the UN, heavily influenced by the US, suggested that drugs should be classified into different categories of harm and all agreeing countries could abide by this system and schedule all synthetic psychoactive substances. So far, 183 out of 195 countries have signed up. Classification systems may vary slightly by country, but to give an example, in the US and the UK, there are five different schedules, with Schedule 1 having the most restrictions and 5 having the least. The answer to question 2 helps to determine which schedule it is classified under. If a drug is deemed to have abuse potential and no medical value, for example, it would be classified under Schedule 1. Schedule 1 drugs are the only ones that are deemed to have no medical value whatsoever and include cannabis, LSD and other psychedelics, such as psilocin and mescaline. This aforementioned scheduling is coming under increasing scrutiny as quality research and evidence mounts up to the contrary. From there, the abuse potential would dictate how far down the scheduling list it goes. For example, under Schedule 5 are substances deemed to have little to no abuse potential, such as cough mixtures with low levels of codeine and anti-diarrheal medications. If, for example, you wanted to get a drug moved from Schedule 1 to another schedule, it would have to be shown to have some medical value. In order for any drug to be shown to have medical value, it must go through a rigorous testing process to assure that it is both safe and effective at treating what it is meant to treat. Psychedelic compounds are no exception to these rules. And these are the rules that are being navigated by researchers, policy reformers and therapists worldwide in order to help millions of people overcome mental health problems. Before we go any further, it may be helpful to get our heads around some useful terms which often get misused or mixed up in the context of discussing this topic. Decriminalization. In a drug context, this means the action or process to stop treating a substance as a legal or a criminal offence. For instance, psilocybin 
has just been decriminalised in Denver, Colorado. They have taken away funding from criminalising the substance, so personal use can no longer be treated as an offence. Decriminalisation is not the same as legalisation. Legalisation The act of legalisation makes something that was previously illegal permissible by law. Sometimes the term medically legalised and recreationally legalised are used to distinguish between whether or not it is legal to use the substance in a solely medical context or more broadly a recreational context. The act of legalisation takes something that was previously illegal and allows it to be permissible by law. Sometimes the term medically legalised and recreationally legalised is used to delineate whether or not it is legal to use the substance in a solely medical context or more broadly a recreational context. For instance, cannabis was recently recreationally legalised in Canada, although it has been medically legal since 2001. Recreational legalisation essentially means that the substance can be legally consumed, produced and sold, like alcohol. Descheduling This is the act of removing a substance from the scheduling system. If a federal government decided to legalise a currently illegal drug, it could technically be removed from the scheduling system. Rescheduling The act of changing the classification of a substance such that it is scheduled differently based on the evidence about its medical value and or abuse potential. For instance, cannabis may be rescheduled in the US from a Schedule 1 drug deemed to have no medical value to any of the other schedules based on the current literature evidencing its medical benefits. The current and protected legal status of psychedelic drugs. To give you an idea of where some of the compounds are in this process, we have dissected the current status of a number of compounds that have shown promise in the scientific literature, starting with MDMA. 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine is not technically a psychedelic compound, however its psychoactive effects have meant that it is commonly grouped together with the more classic psychedelics such as psilocybin and LSD. In the US and UK, MDMA is currently a controlled substance. So that means it's in Schedule 1 and Class A, respectively. This scheduling decrees that this substance has no medical value and a high potential for abuse, and is illegal to manufacture, possess or distribute. Medical professionals and scientists are subject to the same restrictions. It is possible, however, to get a license to work with these substances, but currently it is generally very painstaking to do this. This controlled classification is much the same all over the world, with a few exceptions. In Australia, it is classified slightly differently under Schedule 9, meaning that it can be used for research purposes as long as the research is approved by a recognised Human Ethics Committee. Otherwise, it is similarly illegal to manufacture, possess or distribute. In some European countries, like Portugal, personalised use is decriminalised, meaning that it is still technically illegal, however, being caught with less than a 10-day supply, in the case of MDMA, less than 1 gram, would mean an administrative punishment such as therapy or community services rather than a criminal one such as a fine. However, the drug is still liable to be confiscated and the perpetrator may be issued with a summons to court. Right, so that's the legal state of affairs for MDMA right now. Seems simple enough. But this is very likely to change in the not too distant future. 
you may have heard about the promising research being done using MDMA to assist psychotherapy for individuals with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is more commonly known by the acronym PTSD. After years of meticulous research, scientists and therapists have demonstrated that, when used in a controlled therapeutic environment, MDMA in conjunction with psychotherapy can help people to completely overcome long-standing treatment-resistant PTSD. One of the more remarkable findings is that stable results are being found after just a few sessions with MDMA, nested within a series of talk therapy sessions. Whilst current pharmacological therapies for this psychologically crippling condition stipulate a lifetime on medication, bear in mind that current pharmacological and therapeutic mainstays for this psychologically crippling condition ostensibly stipulate a lifetime on medication. Evidence-based talk therapy, such as trauma-focused CBT, can be very helpful for some people. However, the results that have been found for MDMA have eclipsed this current gold standard treatment quite significantly in terms of efficacy. So what effect have these findings had on policy? Well, before becoming approved for medical use by regulatory administrations like the FDA in the US, or the MHRA in the UK, or the TGA in Australia, drugs must be subjected to a rigorous evaluation known as a multi-phase clinical trial, comprising, of course, of a number of phases, typically four. This is to test whether they will actually work to treat the particular malady in question in humans safely. So far, research on MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD has progressed through phase one and two trials, and phase three clinical trials have now commenced. So let's have an overview of the phases of clinical research. Preclinical studies. Generally, before clinical trials are tested, preclinical studies are conducted in test tubes or with animals to garner preliminary information about the efficacy, toxicity, and pharmacokinetics of the substance. From here, it's then decided whether the treatment warrants further investigation. Phase zero. Phase zero is an optional phase, commonly included as a phase to potentially fast track the development of promising drugs. Phase zero studies might involve microdosing in humans to determine whether the substance acts in the way purported in the preclinical studies. However, these trials don't give us any information on the safety or efficacy of the substance. If the substance acts as expected, the research can then move on to phase one. In an instance where the optional phase zero has not been completed, phase one constitutes the first proper testing of the treatment on humans. This phase tests the safety, side effects, optimal dosage and formulation method of the substance by seeing what the highest dose of the substance that humans can take without serious side effects would be and what the best method of administering the drug is. For example, is it best administered orally, intravenously and so on and so on. Typically, a relatively small number of healthy participants are recruited, approximately 20 to 80 people. They are given the drug in incrementally increasing quantities and then they are observed carefully for any side effects over the course of the drug's life in the body, or what is known as the half-life. This phase might take a couple of months to complete. Phase 2 Phase 2 continues the research on safety from Phase 1 by studying the effects of the drug on a larger number of participants approximately 100 to 300. But this time, unlike in phase one, the participants are not, in inverted commas, healthy. That is, they are living with the condition that the drug is designated to treat. This phase commonly involves what are known as randomized trials, whereby half of the participants are given the drug. 
whilst the control group receive a standard treatment or a placebo and the two groups are compared in terms of the outcomes. Very good scientific trials will also be double blind. That means that both the participant and the investigator are blind to whether they are receiving or administering the real treatment or the placebo. This has understandably constituted a major hurdle in the psychedelic research. As I'm sure you can imagine, it's quite tricky to truly blind a researcher or a participant to whether or not they're receiving a psychedelic substance or a placebo. This problem of blinding is however not insurmountable and incremental improvements and iterations have been made to improve the rates of blinding in psychedelic research. So why bother to blind at all? Well, the reason that blinding is so important is because it controls for what are known as expectancy effects. If a participant knows that they've received the real treatment, they might be unconsciously biased to feel better or to simply report that they feel better, whether or not the substance has had any genuine effect. A full discussion of the role of placebo in research more generally and in psychedelic research is beyond the scope of our conversation. We could spend quite a bit of time talking about that and I'm sure we will in future episodes. Current researchers working on these trials have actually managed to come up with quite decent placebos that still give the user some psychoactive effects and blinding rates are actually quite surprising. For example, in a previous episode we spoke to Martin Williams, the scientific officer at Mind Medicine Australia and they have been using niacin to blind in their study of psilocybin in terminally ill patients. Phase 2 allows the investigators to compare safety and efficacy between people who have been administered the substance and those who haven't. Phase 2 is a significantly larger sample and it happens over a longer period. Phase 2 can take from a couple of months to a couple of years to complete. It's also much trickier to get past this phase and according to FDA data, only about 33% of medications being tested actually end up moving past this phase. Phase 3. This is the business end of things. Phase 3 trials are conducted on much larger samples from approximately 300 to 3,000 participants and can last for several years. Again, randomized controlled studies are used to attempt to demonstrate that the treatment in question is at least as safe and effective as the current gold standard treatment. Phase 3 trials are conducted at more than one medical center or clinic so that a wider range of population groups with varying demographics can be included. If the findings are similarly positive across the board, the results can be more easily generalized to the population at large. Given the large number of participants and the multiplicity of testing sites, it's easy to understand why phase 3 trials are by far the most time-consuming and expensive trials to run. Before approval by the appropriate regulatory agency is granted, there must be at least one successful phase 3 trial, but it seems that it's usually two. And that must show that the drug is up to par in terms of efficacy and safety. If this is the case, then the findings are packaged into a huge document called a regulatory submission describing all the methodological details and results of the trials in human and animal studies, as well as details on how the drug is made and what kind of shelf life it has. Then it's up to the regulatory agency to review this document and to permit the drug to be marketed. Interestingly, in the US, many drugs can still be marketed while they are going through phase 3 trials, on the proviso that they are immediately recalled if any adverse effects are reported. So, now you know the process by which these substances have to pass through to be shown to have some medical value. And perhaps you might have a better understanding of the weight of the phrase MDMA-assisted psychotherapy has passed phase 1 and phase 2 testing and is currently undergoing phase 3 trials. That's why it's grabbing so many headlines. 
In fact, MDMA showed such promise in Phase 1 and Phase 2 trials that the FDA granted breakthrough therapy designation to MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. And that means that this therapy will be fast-tracked through the process of clinical development and review. This designation is only specified for treatments that are designed to treat life-threatening or serious diseases or conditions and that have a good basis of clinical evidence to indicate that the treatment may be more effective than existing therapies. Here are the cliff notes for Phase 3. Participants will be randomly allocated to either a treatment group or a control group. Neither the investigators nor the participants themselves will know which group they are in. The trial will take place across 14 research sites in the US, Canada and Israel. Therapists providing the therapy will be working from a manual to ensure standardised delivery of therapy. The PTSD that the participants of the study have has to be long-standing and it has not subsided even with previous conventional treatment. Phase 3 for the approval process. It's worth noting that there are actually going to be two trials within this phase. They're known as MAP1, MAPP1, and MAP2, MAPP2. And if they go as planned and they result in positive effects, we could be seeing MDMA-assisted psychotherapy as a legitimized and mainstream treatment for PTSD in the US as early as 2021. So as we said, the not too distant future. It's important to bear in mind, however, that these trials have been completed in relation to medicalizing MDMA in the US only at this stage. And with the exception of Israel and Canada, which are part of the phase three US multi-site studies, there is currently only one other MDMA trial in play internationally, and that's going on in the UK. In order for MDMA to be medicalized in other countries and nations, it will need to go through a similar process. What will happen once phase three trials have been completed? Well, it's hard to say for sure at this point in time. It obviously heavily depends on the outcome of phase three trials. However, it's looking very likely that MDMA will be approved in the US as a legal medicine that can be prescribed by anyone with a license to prescribe by 2021. Now, in terms of scheduling, this could have the knock-on effect of meaning that the DEA would have to really move the drug from Schedule 1 to either Schedule 2 or even Schedule 3. As an aside, the DEA currently defines Schedule 2 drugs as substances with high potential for abuse that may lead to psychological or physiological dependence, while Schedule 3 are described as substances with moderate to low potential for physical or physiological dependence. So what will all this mean for other countries? Having a drug approved for medical use in the US is always quite a handy for other countries because they can lean on the evidence basis already established to help potentially fast track the treatment through the process of clinical testing in their own country. Well, thanks very much for listening. I really hope that you learned something new about the scheduling of drugs for the phasing of clinical trials because we here at Mind Manifest really believe that scientific literacy is one of the most important variables in all of this. If you feel that you got something from this, we would be so appreciative if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. We're going to do a rundown of the legal status of all of the psychedelic substances currently being researched. And next up is psilocybin. If you have any requests or any burning questions about things that you would like answered with all of this, please just contact us through the form at mindmanifestpodcast.com. And until next time, take care.